Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. This episode, Chris and I are talking about Yanasa, a camp for gifted kids and teens. And we wanted to talk about this because Chris has just returned from camp and it's a good opportunity to debrief about it. And we wanted to do this because it's something that really brings Chris a lot of joy and we want to share that joy with you as our listeners. We talk about what the camp is about, how it started, Chris's experience working with young people and sharing information about overexcitabilities and the theory of positive disintegration with them. We talk about the difference that this camp can make in the lives of young people and the value of sowing some very important seeds in their lives to help them on their journey to authenticity. Whether you're a young gifted person yourself or a parent of a young gifted person or simply how you might talk about the theory with a young person in your life, I think you'll find this interesting. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Positive Disintegration. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host Emma Nicholson and with me is Dr. Chris Wells. Hi Chris. Hello Emma. I was just coughing there for a second but now <laughs> I'm able to talk again. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you can talk but um, I understand you've been a, a bit ill and a bit busy and had a few things going on. Yeah I guess all of those things are true. I am still having like cold symptoms post COVID, even though it's been more than two months now, which is pretty frustrating. I went to the doctor yesterday. Well, I went to an urgent care and they basically told me that like, it's one of the most common things that they're hearing from people who go there is that they're wondering why they still have a cough or, you know, why they're still not back to normal, but that I just have to be patient. So I'll try to be patient. But yeah, it's been a busy, it was a busy spring in multiple ways, like, but also, you know, like we talked about in our episode in May for mental health awareness, like, you know, Frank died and then I went to camp. And really the thing that I wanted to talk with you about today is, is UNASA, the camp that I work at. Um, I was there earlier this month and it was amazing as usual. How have you been? Uh, I've been really good and I've been waiting for you to come back <laughs> to come back online because it's been like while you're at camp obviously we don't get to to chat or anything so you know I've been wondering what's going on and it's just you and me having a talk and I was thinking this morning it's actually quite funny that we said let's just get online and have a chat and wing it because before you left for camp, I remember the last thing you messaged me was like, I feel so unprepared this year. And I'm like, ah, oh, you've got this. Just wing it. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to take the same approach today. Yeah, that's funny. I did feel unprepared this year, but it's because it felt like it was on me fast compared to other years, I guess. You know, and part of it, again, is because of Frank. Like, Frank dying led to me kind of shutting down from the stuff that I was working on and thinking about him and processing my grief and going through that. And then, you know, we had his celebration of life in early June and Michael came out for that. And 
you know, that was just uh, on a weekend. And then the next weekend we had camp. And so he was back here for that. And it just has been a really busy June. But yeah, even though I was unprepared for camp, it went really well. And it was funny because your advice when I told you that, that like, I know that stuff and not to worry about it was, was right. Because I do know how to do the workshops <laughs> that I do about overexcitability or personal growth. I mean, those are definitely in my wheelhouse. And how do you feel now that you've sort of come out the other end of it? Did the wing it approach work well? I mean, obviously you said you did. It, it, but how are you actually feeling emotionally about the whole thing now that you're out the other side of it? Well, that's an interesting question. It's such a, it's a really intense thing. It's like, I haven't really talked about it too much, but, you know, so it's this camp, it's called UNASA and they're, are two sessions every year. There's one in Colorado and that's the one we just had. And then there's one in Michigan next month. And I'll be doing that one this year for the first time. But the one in Colorado is bigger. And so we had over 70 kids. I think there were like 72 or 73 campers. I don't know, roughly 20 of them. I don't remember the exact number are leadership campers. And so there's two groups of them. Those are the older kids. They've been campers and, you know, now they're in like a role model kind of role at camp. You know, it's, it's hard to explain. Like, so there are these, they're gifted kids and twice exceptional kids. So it's intense. It's an intense experience to go and um, like run the programs that we do as adults. Like I was in the facilitator role, you know, like I said, Michael's there. He's a senior fellow. He's one of the creators of the camp. You know, one of the things I do is do workshops, and that's what I was feeling unprepared for. But I mean, every time so far, it was the fourth time I've done it. And each time I've done a workshop on overexcitability, which is actually more than that. I call it the overexcitability workshop, but I also talk about Dabrowski's theory and positive disintegration. And, you know, we always talk a little bit about giftedness. And then I also did a workshop with Michael called Giftedness from the Inside Out. And it's fun to do it with him. You know, that's like, it's just a special experience to sit in the room with Michael and talk with the kids about what it means to be gifted. And we talk with them about overexcitability and they ask us questions. And we ask them questions. You know, this time we ask them questions from the open-ended overexcitability questionnaire. And it's just a lot of fun to hear what they have to say. And then I also did a workshop on personal growth and I talked about like developing a practice for personal growth, what that's looked like for me over my life. And we talked about like self-compassion and self-care and, you know, some values identification. We also do psychosynthesis, which is, but they're really like with the kids, we do these guided imagery exercises and they're, they're fun. And I do them in my day-to-day -day life which, you know, I'm pretty honest with the kids about. So just for people who may be listening to this and aren't sure about what UNASA is or where it came from, do you want to give us a bit of background about, you know, what the camp's about, where it started, and, and what the purpose of it is? Sure. So it started in 2002. This year is actually the 25th anniversary of the Institute for Educational Advancement, and that's the organization that, um, created UNASA. The first senior, the first fellows were Michael Pihofsky, Patty Gatto Walden, 
Stephanie Tolan and Bessie Jones. She's the president of the IEA, also, you know, one of the people who founded it. Um, Betty Maxtroth is someone else who worked as a fellow for several years at UNASA. Uh, Dan Titchener has also been a fellow, Jim Delisle. There are other people involved too. You know, Sheila Gallagher is a fellow, Amy Gazer. So Sheila was there this time, this month, but Amy couldn't be. And we had two new facilitators, Jamie McDougall and Sylvia Bagley. And, um, you know, the camp was created to give gifted children a chance to be with their peers, you know, their true peers. And there's an intergenerational aspect of camp where, you know, there are people in the elder role, like I just described. I mean, you know, Michael's the senior fellow. He's really the, the elder at camp. And so is Sheila. I mean, I guess we all kind of are, you know I mean? But there's even, even us adults are intergenerational. And then there's counselors who are former campers. And, you know, so, you know, you think about it, it's been around for more than 20 years now. There's like a whole, you could have like an alumni organization of all the kids who've been at this camp and adults who've been a part of it. It's really special for me to be in it, you know, a part of it now, like years later, you know, I mean, this was my fourth time. I did it for the first time in 2019, you know, so there is like a whole philosophy underlying the camp. It, it's really like a camp for the whole gifted child. You know, there are these five aspects of self or domains that we talk about with the kids, you know, the physical, uh, intellectual, social, emotional, and spiritual. And I would say, you know, the spiritual aspect of camp is really evident when we do psychosynthesis and do these guided imagery exercises with the kids. It's, it's really neat to see, uh, the impact that it has on some of them. I had at least, let's see, uh, two or three people at camp I talked with about having aphantasia. And, you know, we've talked about aphantasia in some of our episodes, like the one with Fiona Smith and Kate Arms. I think it also came up. But, um, you know, people who don't have mental imagery have a very different experience of psychosynthesis than people who do visualize well. So that's been kind of interesting to talk with the kids about um, and the counselors because one of the counselors also described having aphantasia this time. It's funny, one thing that stands out to me listening to you talk about this is if anyone sort of offhandedly said, oh, there's a camp for gifted kids, I think there'd be a lot of preconceived notions about what that would entail and I guess a lot of people go, oh, well, they're off, you know, playing with chemistry sets and <laughs> pursuing academic <laughs> achievement. But it's, you know, what you're describing is the complete opposite of that. Um, and it sounds like the majority of it you spend tackling the other domains that make sort of whole person, talking about personality development and talking about, you know, spiritual aspects. And you know, it's obviously a social interaction in and of itself where you get to talk to other people about, you know, overexcitability or, you know, aphantasia or other, other things that you might share. So if anyone was trying to imagine what a camp for gifted kids look like, you know, if you just ask someone on the street, I bet it's not that. It's probably anything <laughs> but what you're actually doing. But, you know, obviously it's important for 
you know, whole development of self. Totally. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to think about because, you know, the kids, there's such a range, you know, the age range um, is like 10 to 15, technically, but I think that we had a, at least a few 16 year olds this time. And I think it's because of COVID, you know, we, the last few years, there were or a couple years, there were, um, it was kind of some grace given to the older kids who missed you know, they didn't get to do it in person in 2020. So um, I think it'll probably go back to 10 to 15, you know, without the older kids being there. We're getting there already. But, um, you know, not all of the kids are high achievers, but many of them are. I mean, there's an interesting, it's just always such a fascinating group of kids that, you know, many of them are 2E. That's, I mean, I resonate very much with being 2E. And so, it's really fun for me to get to spend this week with these kids and try to provide them a safe place to be themselves and to really be able to explore who they are, you know, their giftedness, whatever their other types of neurodivergences are like outside of giftedness. It's really special to, to get to be a part of this because like, you know, at the end of the week, the feedback that you hear from them. It's just amazing to hear like, I mean, for some of them, it's the only time during the year that they get to talk about this aspect of themselves, like being gifted or the overexcitabilities, you know, the things that we talk about. Um, or maybe it's the only time that they get to see real peers who they feel like they fit in with and who get them. That's a big, big deal. Um, I can't say enough about how important it is for some of these kids to have these social connections there. It's, I'm sure, life-saving for some of them. You know, this year, it's been really cool for me to grow, like, as a part of this program, too. I mean, I really felt this year a confidence in myself that I don't think I did have. So it's nice to finally have some confidence. I can say that that's a whole story in itself. I mean, the first time I did it in 2019, you know, it was like I had been going through a period of disintegration for the past couple years at that point. Um, like getting to know Michael, finishing my PhD. Yesterday was actually five years since I defended my dissertation. And I thought about that, like, wow, it's hard to believe it's been five years. But it was four years ago that I did UNASA for the first time. And I was a counselor. And oh my gosh, it was so hard to be a counselor at age 46, like physically demanding. You're spending 24-7 with the kids, basically, <laughs> like sleeping in the cabin with them. And it was intense. And the first day, I just basically had a meltdown. I mean, that's what Michael would say. I mean, it was, it was rough. I didn't know that it was going to be as intense as it was. You know, I've learned a lot about myself through these experiences at camp every year. But so this year, it was so different. Um, my biggest concern, honestly, going into camp was that Frank had died and I was very emotional. And I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this week emotionally? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a real, I realized that it may sound ridiculous, but it took basically all of May to get myself prepared emotionally to be able to deal with the kids well at camp. And I was able to do it, but it wasn't easy. And I had to rely on the psychosynthesis exercises myself, you know, 
two mornings in a row at least. You know, once I did it with Michael, he read an exercise for me. And then the next day I listened to the recording and did it myself. But, you know, it's just a part of my own personal practice at this point. And I think that it helps with my group. I had 15 kids in a group this time, which was much bigger than usual. But it still went well, even though it was a bigger group than usual. And I think that I get some buy-in, honestly, from the campers because of the fact that I do these exercises in my own life. And, you know, I can really speak to them and the transformations that I've seen in myself thanks to them. It, I was going to say you're, it's a bit of like modeling and from their perspective, I guess it's good to see that they're probably highly emotional in themselves just to see that it's okay that this carries on through to your your adulthood. You know, you're not going to leave it behind, but that's okay. But there are ways to deal with this stuff because sometimes I think when we think about role modeling for kids and for teenagers, it's, you know, we think that that has to be a perfect image. Whereas sometimes the best way to role model for other people is to show your vulnerability um, and to provide, you know, we've talked on this how many episodes, like provide that mirror and say it's okay to feel this way. Here's how you deal with it. You know, as your you know, camp leaders, we feel this way too, but here's how you can deal with it and that's all right. Yeah, I would say that the modeling is a big part of it and holding up a mirror for sure. And I was just thinking while you were talking about that, about the counselors too. I mean, I think that because it's intergenerational, it's extra special in some ways because like there's a lot of modeling going on and it's and there's a lot of holding up of mirrors and you can really um I don't know you can really feel I think the trust between us to some degree you know like this time I had Joe as my counselor and it's hard to even describe how cool it's been to get to you know, first I worked with Joe as a counselor too in 2021. That's when we met my son's counselor, like, and they stayed in the same cabin together. And so like Joe has been a role model for my own kid. And then we got to work together, you know, it was technically my group, this psychosynthesis group, but I asked Joe to read the exercise, you know, at least once in multiple sessions, because, you know, I know that it's, cool for the counselors to get to do it too, because they used to be campers. And, you know, the fact that we can all speak to like how powerful some of these techniques are, or those various aspects of camp, I'd say that about, it's just really special. It's pretty amazing. And so after camp, it's always hard for me because I miss everybody. (laughs) And so this year, I'm really excited that I get to go to the second one because normally I only have gotten to do the first one. And then I'm like, oh, I'm so bummed because I have to wait like another whole year to do it again. And so I'm excited that I only have three weeks now to wait until I get to do it again. And there's actually still room. So, you know, I don't know how fast we're going to get this episode out. But, you know, if you listen to this and it's before like... I don't know, July 10th, you could probably still have your kid go. That's a good, that's a good plug. I know, right? I mean, I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously, but yeah, I mean, there's always next year. If you have a kid who is in that age range of 10 to 10 to 14 for Michigan and 10 to 15 for Colorado. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, 
is you were saying in your sessions you talked about overexcitability and you talked about the theory of positive disintegration and arguably when we think about the theory, and I know we're trying to resolve that problem a little bit even through the podcast, but one problem with the theory is obviously it is quite academic um, and it can be a bit heavy going and we understand that. Uh, but I'm really interested to understand, you know, what was it that you told them about the theory? How did you explain it? Um, and did they resonate with it? And there's two reasons for me asking this question. Firstly, we've spoken to one young person on this podcast. We spoke to Lance, right, about his experiences. But he was, he's arguably a little bit older than the kids that you have at the camp. Um, so to be interesting to hear, you know, how it resonates with, like, younger teenagers. Um, but the second reason for asking that is since I've been writing about my things, um, in an attempt to put a, a book together, I, I realized how young I was when I started experiencing disintegrations. Uh, and obviously, you know, no idea what I was going through at the time because you know, I didn't discover this theory till uh, well into middle age. But it's it's obvious that, you know, we've talked about this before, kids can go through disintegration. Teenagers can go through disintegration. Both you and I went through those things when we were young, even if we didn't have the words to put around it. Are you seeing examples where they've got that lived experience? Um, and if so, uh, are they resonating with the theory? How are they reacting to it? Does it make sense to them? Um, you know, what's your experience of talking about Dabrowski to teenagers? That's a great question. Um, and yeah, I can tell you that it was quite the journey of figuring out how to talk about the theory with the kids. Um, you know, the first year <laughs> in 2019, I remember really struggling just to figure out how to talk about overexcitability, you know? Um, and so what I did that first time was have them take the OEQ2 and I just introduced Michael's work and said like, well, you guys are at this camp with Michael. Well, he brought this construct of overexcitability to gifted ed and I gave them the background on it. Um, and it was interestingly, it was that summer after camp that I really started questioning the connections between overexcitability and the kinds of neurodivergence. And so one thing that I heard from the kids this year that was really cool was that they appreciate being able to come back like year after year and hear what I've learned about the theory or overexcitability in between, you know, which is neat. And like that every year I come back and there's more nuance to what I'm saying because I've learned new things about it, which is cool and true. But so that first year I just talked about overexcitability. I didn't even try to tackle the theory. <laughs> beyond like saying they came from this theory and that Michael had worked with Dabrowski and, you know, just giving them kind of a nutshell, a, just an overview. Um, then the next time I did it in 2021, I did talk more about positive disintegration just briefly, you know, but it was in a different way. Like the next time I did it, I did kind of an all camp workshop and I involved a couple of the counselors and we talked about, giftedness too. And then I, the next day I talked about the third factor. <laughs> and so it was a trip because like, 
you know, we brought a lot of lived and lived experience into it and said like, this is how overexcitability looks. You can see the connections with neurodivergence. Um, the third factor, like I talked about the dynamism. I explained that it's also, you know, a factor of development in the theory. So then the next time, which was last year, I did manage to talk, you know, a little bit more about positive disintegration. And then this year, I think I did the best job so far. And it's because I've learned that the best way to talk about the theory with the kids is to just do it and by pulling in like our modern mental health language. I mean, there's no way around the fact that um, positive disintegration looks different, whether it's unilevel or multi-level and whether or not it's a mix of dynamisms from both of these processes. So, I mean, I can tell you at camp this month, I mean, for sure, I talked with kids who are dealing with ambivalence, who are maybe having some self-sabotaging behaviors, for sure, who are seeing the second factor show up. But these kids also have guilt and shame. You know, they are dissatisfied with themselves. And so there are interesting mixtures of dynamisms. But when we're talking about it, I'm obviously not like using the language of dynamisms with them because you couldn't possibly introduce it, explain it like that just, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, all I can do is tie it in with symptom language. They're experiencing anxiety. They're experiencing depression. You know, some of the kids are going through struggles around identity, you know, and gender and figuring these things out about themselves. You know, at camp, I think one of the most special things is that we provide a very safe container for that kind of exploration. And I mean, that is personally one of my most important goals when I'm there is to to really create a safe space. And I mean, and I mean it, like, I mean, it is, I do my very best to make sure that everyone is being kind to each other and they're respecting each other and and that they're truly safe. And it comes through. I mean, you know, we do get feedback. It's almost like your approach is how do we talk about Nebraska without actually using any of his language, um, which, you know, can be a bit of a challenge. But I, th I think that you're right that that's the way to do it is to talk people through the process without getting bogged down in the jargon and you relating it. That That's part of our job. Relate it to something that makes sense to the person, um, whether that's through using the language that they're familiar with or using analogies or whatever technique. But I'm really fascinated in, and you don't have to get specific or, you know, reveal any secrets, but I'm really fascinated in how they react to that, whether or not it's, it's making sense. Cause you said some of them are already showing dynamism. So, you know, we're already seeing, you know, unilevel or even in bits of multi-level disintegration in them. How do they react in knowing that there is a framework out there that describes the things that they're going through? And also, do you sort of get into the point of talking about some of the level four stuff? So things like, you know, I mean, I know you do psychosynthesis with them, so maybe you're talking about autopsychotherapy. How do they react to knowing that there's a framework that describes them, but also that the same framework describes a potential solution to what it is that they're going through? <laughs> Just as you were saying those things, you know, I had like 
I had an image sort of of it's like triage that we're doing at camp. I mean, it's such a it's such a fast pace. You know, it's one week. It's highly scheduled. And so my opportunities to talk with the kids about the theory are extremely limited. <laughs> you know, it's like I get to do a few workshops. Um, I get to talk with them when there's a free moment. Uh, you know, this time, this past time, I, you know, made time to talk with kids during meals and during a break time if necessary. I mean, the kids who are most in need of talking about the theory and learning about it are the ones who are going to want to come up to me and ask if we can have a private conversation about it, you know, or um, they're going to come to maybe more than one workshop that I do because they are interested and they, they know that this is going on with them and they want to hear more. You know, there's just not enough time to, like I couldn't possibly go into too much depth about what the theory is about, especially in terms of levels. You know, I do talk about the processes of unilevel and multilevel and what that means and that, you know, even within these processes, there's levels like, you know, spontaneous, multilevel, you know, organized or directed. Those things may come up. Maybe I'll mention that Michael has studied these exemplars, you know, that surely has come up over the years. Um, but like, it's very, it's broad. So, but how do they respond to discovering that this framework exists? You know, I talk about psychoneurosis as not an illness. That's really basic. You know, I don't even have to get into depth about what he meant by psychoneurosis. They just intuitively get it. They, they know, they, so many of these kids, you know, have experienced anxiety and depression and, um, have already been through disintegrations and some of them, um, you know, like it's life changing for some of them to learn about it and to recognize that there's a different, there's another way to view what's going on with themselves outside of deficit language and, you know, outside of the DSM. And like, that's incredible feedback to hear that it makes such a difference and I know that it does because, I mean, they tell me. So it's no secret. That is like a huge thing that I found in theory personally. It's like shifting from that whole, congratulations, you are mentally ill, to another mindset of, hey, maybe you're not broken, um, which is a huge relief um, to know that intellectually, at least, even if it takes you a long time to sort of feel it. So you know, it's encouraging that even though you don't have a lot of time with them, you're planting the seeds of what might lead to their own exploration of this because some of them, if they are resonating, they're thirsty for more from the get-go. Um, but on the other hand of that, when you say that they immediately resonate with psychoneurosis is not an illness and you don't need to explain it to them, like, it's a good thing from one perspective, but also you're like, hmm, that means that they're all going through it, you know, for them to have that recognition to that level because they've had lived experience of it, you know, is obviously in one way not a not a good thing. I mean, it shows that they've got potential to develop, but, you know, it's not easy. No, I mean, for sure. 
I'd be lying if I said that there haven't been moments at camp, especially when I was a counselor. Because, you know, when I was a counselor, I had more contact with the kids. I was with them all day long and there overnight, you know. And so, uh, you know, I was able to have more insights into what their lives are like just because I would hear their candid conversations with each other. You know, and it's always, I've always found it personally important to really give the kids their space. And so when I was a counselor and like living in the lodge with them, I just let them have their conversations. And if they wanted me to, you know, be involved, then they had to ask me, you know, because I think that it's important to have privacy amongst themselves as peers. And I'm an adult. And I, so I just tried to kind of stay back. And I'd be lying if I said that I didn't overhear conversations that were a little heartbreaking about how deeply misunderstood they are in their day-to-day lives by age peers, adults, parents in some cases. I mean, it's hard to hear these things. Like it's, you know, you, you wish that there was something that you could do beyond being with them at camp for this one week. But um, I think that Probably one of the biggest applications of the theory at camp that I bring is authenticity. (laughs) Um, That's the thing. Like the kids, I think, know that I'm for real and that kids are real good at sniffing out bullshit. (laughs) Oh, like they, they exactly. I mean, these are gifted kids and they are walking bullshit detectors. And so they know that I'm pretty legit in what I'm saying. Like I will share with them aspects of myself and my history that, you know, lend some legitimacy to what I'm saying. And when I say to them, like this, before I had this theory, all I had was the DSM and I thought that I was broken and there was something wrong with me. Um, And then I discovered this field of gifted education and Michael's work and Dabrowski's theory. And, you know, I don't consider myself mentally ill anymore. It gives some of these kids pause because they are already on the path that I was on in pathologizing themselves and reading the DSM and trying to figure out what's wrong with them. And so that's one thing. But then the authenticity part is like helping them unmask, helping them figure out who they really are, because it's not at all clear for many of them. They know who their parents want them to be, and they know what the expectations are, and they know who they'd like to be maybe. But they don't know, you know, they're, they're trying to figure things out. And my message is to be true to themselves, you know, and not let other people's beliefs and expectations like cloud their own visions and just to help them find their own path to authenticity. And I think it's cool. Like, I mean, many, like some of them may listen to this, like it's weird for me to even think that, but I know now that it's possible and it happens. And I mean, I guess to anybody who, you know, is listening from camp, I want you to know how special it is to me and how I wish it was more than one week a year that we got to do it. Hi kids. Right. Or, or counselors or other adults. One thing that you would, when you were talking about authenticity that sort of popped into my head is is because I know some of your stories, right? We've talked about them on the podcast and we've talked about them offline and if anyone like was a parent and sort of knows any of your past year stories, I guess that might make them balk 
a little bit and go, I don't know if I want my kids hearing about this, but as you said, like some of them are already down that path of thinking that they're mentally ill, you know, and it's an important thing for them to, as I said, have that modeling, see that this behavior, you know, how it pans out and, and know that they're not alone in it, um, as well as obviously see your authenticity in it so they can you know, trust you and feel feel like they can approach you. Do you have any thoughts on your parental reaction to some of the stuff that comes out? Because, you know, inevitably it's going to be twofold because the kids are going back to that place where they have been masking and they have been maybe feeling like they're misunderstood. So they're, they're going back there, um, but they're also going back with tales of what's gone on at camp. Um, have you had any feedback from parents about, you know, does it make a positive difference when they go home? Um, does it cause any of the parents' concerns about, you know, what they might be learning about? Do you, do you have any insights there? I've definitely heard from parents that there's a positive impact for their kids. And so, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that I have a very serious history, you know, and I have learned how to talk about it with the kids in a way that is still real without being um, shocking. You know, it's it's been a whole journey figuring out how to do that. I mean, I remember very clearly the first time feeling kind of a despair about how to how to navigate that without saying too much, without being inappropriate. But I've learned that I can talk about it in a way that's real enough without divulging too many specifics or details that they don't need to know. You know, they don't need to know the, all the gory details of what happened, but um I can say that yeah, I mean I definitely struggled with drugs in the past. I uh had mental health challenges, you know. Um it's it's not anything that seems to be like too much or too threatening. Um and like part of it too has been it's one thing that I think is really cool is that, you know, significant aspects of my gender journey have come to me, like, because of camp. I mean, in 2021, when I was a counselor for the second time, I had a group of kids that I was staying with that, you know, in our group. And we had a lot of conversations about gender, you know, they were exploring their gender, a couple or a few of them. And I mean, so was I. <laughs> like, and so I remember them saying, maybe next year you can use they, them pronouns. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I couldn't even imagine that. And then last year I didn't. I used she and they. And then this year I put they, them on my badge. And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm I'm gonna use they, them pronouns this year. <laughs> it's really neat for me to know that I can be like a 50-year-old adult, like modeling that at camp. So not only are they tracking your learning journey and say, what is Chris going to talk about this year? We want to we want to know that something new has been learned and discovered since last year. So they're tracking your learning journey. They're tracking your gender journey. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's a it's a real trip to to get to do that with them. I don't know. It's been cool to get to do it as part of like this 
UNASA community and, you know, Michael's there. And that's always like a whole dynamic in itself for me to deal with, to be there with him. I feel so much like Michael's student when I'm at UNASA. It's cool. You know, we do like this parent introduction before camp where we like talk about ourselves and our work and the stuff that we're going to do. And, you know, for me, it's always like, I study Dabrowski's theory, you know, I study Michael's work and it's so special to get to be there with him and to do it with him and to talk about his work, which gives the kids something to talk with him about because, you know, it's, I mean, Michael, like he's 89 and a half at this point, you know, like he is truly the elder at camp. And I think that in some ways at this point, you know, I appreciate being able to bridge the gap with the kids and Michael and to say like, this is the work that he's done and look at how it's changed my life. And, you know, he created this camp, but he's still here. And, you know, he does workshops that the kids love too. Like he does one on reincarnation that is fascinating. (laughs) I mean, he like discusses these lines of evidence for reincarnation and really encourages the kids to think critically about evidence and, you know, to think about spiritual concepts, like from a scientific perspective. And then he does one on advanced psychosynthesis, which is really just extra exercises that are a little deeper, maybe in some ways or different than the ones that we do with our groups. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool. I think it's cool too for, you know, when you're first describing that it's intergenerational, I'm thinking, you know, that's what a village looks like, doesn't it? When we say it takes a village to raise a child, you're having a varied generational perspective from you know multiple people that helps having people be able to give kids and teenagers different perspectives from you know different backgrounds is you know, diversity's king as far as I'm concerned um but it also I guess shows that that handing down of you can take the theory from Dabrowski and Michael's taken it. He's done his work on it. And then you've taken Michael's work and now you've done your work on it. I mean, it not only speaks to the fact that this theory is something that can be worked with. It's not to be put in a glass cabinet and never touched, but also that it would get them thinking on the lines of what am I going to do with this work? You know, how am I going to take it and how am I going to be the next person in the village? Yeah. It's been such a challenge to figure that out. I mean, for sure, that's been part of my path with working there with Michael has been like talking about the theory from my own perspective and based on the research that I've done and my own lived experience. And it's not the same way that Michael talks about it, you know, and um, that's been interesting to figure out, honestly. And, you know, and there's other interesting dynamics of, you know, being intergenerational at camp, like Sheila Gallagher, Like her son, Colin, is a counselor. And so, you know, and then I've been there when my son was there, which is cool too. Um, But another thing I was thinking of that is special about UNASA is that even the people at the camp that host us, we go to Camp Shady Brook in Deckers, Colorado. Every year when we go back and see them again, the staff from Shady Brook, the people who run that camp and the people who come back and work you know, every summer, it just also feels so good to see them again. And it's just like the levels of supportive community at UNASA 
are deep. It's so special. And what's funny to me in retrospect is like when I was first getting to know Michael, he was having to, he was going to camp. And so that, and that would happen every summer for the first three years that I knew him, you know, he would go to camp and I didn't get it. Like, I was like, what is the big deal about this camp? And, you know, he would put all of this effort into preparing for it. And then he would have to recover afterward. And I just, I just didn't understand until I was there. And then I was like, oh, like now I totally get it. Like they created such a special thing. And I think one other thing that's really cool is that all of us adults um, are able to be so open about our giftedness and share about our gifted journeys along with whatever else we've dealt with. You know, I mean, really, there's something so special about the gifted representation there that we all are just unapologetic about who we are. I think it's very cool. And I guess I wanted to, I suppose, ask you, I mean, it's a process of unmasking and being your authentic self. And it's a space where obviously everybody from the kids up to you know, the counsellors and the senior fellows all get an opportunity to do that in a safe space. You talked about creating that safe space as well. For people like us who maybe didn't get that same experience when we grow, were growing up, what difference do you think even just having a taste of that having a taste of interacting with other gifted people, having a taste of being in a, a safe space where they can talk about their, you know, their giftedness or, or their overexcitabilities or their twice exceptionality or any of their, their issues. What difference do you see that making to the next generation and, you know, how might their stuff play out differently from just having a small experience um, of this kind of environment. So w what impact do you think it's going to make in their lives? Well, you know, this was only my fourth time, so I don't have the long view yet that Michael has. I mean, he has already seen so many kids over the years and has seen the impact and how life-changing it is. And I've only had a glimpse of that so far, but I think that it can make a huge difference and that I know that when I was a kid, I would have really had a tough time in a span of a week and letting my guard down and really hearing what was happening. You know, you know, all this to say, like, I hope that for the most part, there's a huge positive impact. And I think that like, even seeing what it did for my son was unexpected. Like, I just, I didn't realize what a big deal it was for him to come to camp and get to see, you know, what it was like to feel like he fit in with other kids and a way that he did. And to get to be there with me too, I think that it was special for both of us together to be able to do it. And I was sad this year that he wasn't able to come again because he aged out last year. But um, yeah, it makes a difference. And I suppose for kids too, where, you know, maybe they don't, feel comfortable being completely open or, you know, it doesn't have an immediate impact, even seeing that it's a possibility may in the long term impact their thinking about themselves and being authentic. So even if you don't have the opportunity to be authentic at the time or maybe you're going back into circumstances that don't allow that, I think just even seeing the possibility of this being a thing 
being it being modeled by other people even where you can't do the thing yourself um is inspiring yeah i agree um and i do think that that's true and i i can only imagine the impact that it has in between camps you know for kids who come back like i know that if there had been something like this when i was young it could have made a huge tremendous difference for me to even be offered an alternative perspective. You know, I mean, that's whenever I talk about the theory, I just really try to make clear that this is just another way of viewing things. It's a non-pathologizing way to understand this really intense experience of life that so many of these kids relate to. I mean, you can just see like what a difference it makes for the ones who have strong overexcitabilities to have a different framework than I'm mentally ill or, you know, just broken from having this. It's, it's a big deal. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I, I just think back to when I was really, really struggling in my life in my young adulthood and my whole perception of going to get help from someone of going to see a therapist or even a doctor was they are going to label me as crazy they're going to label me as mentally ill and they're going to stick me on medication and my life will be absolutely ruined. So I was ever too terrified to even reach out to talk to people because of this fear of the stigma of mental illness. And had I been shown that there was some alternative way to think about this stuff, um, not even just the message that we get, you know, we, I think we talked about this in the mental health episode already, but not just that message of it's okay, you know, if you go through a bit of poor mental health, but take the step beyond that and go, you know, you're not broken at all. Like that way of thinking may have prompted me to go and seek help when I really, really needed it, but I didn't, I kept it all internalized. And my hope for these kids is by, being given the opportunities to be authentic by being given the these mirroring opportunities the opportunities to be vulnerable and also to get those key messages that things like psychoneurosis are not an illness and there's a different way to think about that stuff even if that seed just sits and germinates in their head for a long time and then one day when they're an adult they go through some shit and that message sprouts and helps them like fantastic Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Planting the seed is so important, I think. And another seed that I really like to plant with the kids when I'm talking about the theory is the fact that we have so much more control over our minds and our thoughts and our feelings than I think we give ourselves credit for. And that if you have this intense experience of being gifted, highly gifted, profoundly gifted, and you have overexcitabilities, it's a lot to live that way. Um, and it's very individual to figure out how to live with it. Um, but, you know, we give them actual tools at camp for doing it. You know, they do yoga or they do other body work. You know, uh, Qigong has been one of the things that was offered in the past too. We do psychosynthesis exercises. Like we are showing them a way of regulating themselves, of tending their nervous systems, as Katie would say, Katie Higginsley. I love her use of tending 
the nervous system instead of regulating, you know, it's just a, I do think that that's a better way of viewing it. But anyway, helping them see like how much agency they have. And that's all a part of, of what we do with them, which is, which is cool because, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that psychosynthesis gives actual tools that work well with the theory of positive disintegration and they go hand in hand. And in the book that I'm working on, definitely one of the things that I have been writing about is the impact of these exercises on me, you know, how they facilitated transformation, how they gave me tools to work with the imagery in my head in a more effective way, uh, all of that. And so, you know, I don't think that every kid it's, you know, it's not realistic to think that they're all going to go home and, you know, stick to this program and and do it. But some of them do and they're hearing what we're saying and it's, it's definitely sinking in. As you said, it's planting that seed and doing it at a critical time. Um, what you're saying about the level of control that you actually have, it's not apparent to you when you're a teenager. You know, from the the time you're little, you go to school, you do what your parents say, you, you're pretty much living to other people's rules the entire time. And there ain't much wiggle room in that for you to take control of things or you know, either because you don't have the opportunity or you don't have the skill set yet. So there's not much experience of taking control when you're that age. You don't have a lot of lived experience of, you know, being self-directed. And I think that too is an important seed to plant if the sheer fact that you can take control of some of the things. And in fact, the only person that can take control really of what's inside your head is you. Planting the seed is a big deal. And seriously, when I was a teenager, if someone had even suggested that I had control over my mental imagery. <laughs> I mean, what a big deal that would have been for me. I don't talk with the kids about how my imagination was so problematic when I was young. I mean that, but think about it. Like it was <laughs> my, I mean, all you have to do is listen to episode eight and hear about my experience of having an imaginal world and what that did. Like, if you had told me when I was young that I could rescript my imagery away from thinking about drugs or death or the dark things that were on my mind when I was young, that would have changed my life. I mean, wow. It's hard to even imagine the impact that that would have had. I would be a completely different person now, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I had to go through all of that in order to, be doing this work now, but it would have been a big deal. I feel like this isn't my most articulate episode. I, <laughs> I just, I've been having a tough several weeks of this post COVID post losing Frank time, you know, has been a lot. And it was really nice to be at camp and to just immerse myself into the work for that 10 day period that I was away from home and like, just give it my all. And I did. I mean, I just, when I'm there, I am giving it my all and I'm just doing my best to like 
be there for everybody, be there for the kids, um, you know, make myself available if they need me to do my very best with every activity I have to do every workshop, you know, every group session. It's, it's a real privilege to get to be a part of these kids' lives and to get to work with the colleagues that I work with and, you know, to get to be there at this, you know, incredible camp in Colorado. That's a beautiful setting. The counselors are amazing. The IEA staff is amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's very special. I'm really glad that I got to talk about it in this episode. I wanted to do an episode about it last year, but right after camp, I had to prepare to do that keynote at the Congress. And that just like took every moment of my attention. Well, I hope this whole thing's planted some seeds for you too, because it sounds like it has, because first of all, you're full of shit. Because <laughs> you, you, you've been fine and articulate and we completely winged this episode. We're like, <laughs> even when it's you and I, normally we've got some notes of what we want to talk about. Nah, nothing. It's like, yeah, we'll just get on the phone and have a chat. We'll be fine. It'll work out. So you winged it here. <laughs> you winged it at camp. Wait, I think going in you weren't really sure how you'd handled it because of the COVID and the shit that you've been through with Frank and that. And you've come out the other side not only by the sounds of it having done a spectacular job and making a big impact in the lives of some young people, but it's helped you as well and made you realise that, yeah, you can wing it. Huh. Yeah, you're right. Yes. I mean, it's I'm doing okay. It feels to me like I'm really struggling lately, but I think that's because I hold myself to a really high standard and I am trying to be gentle with myself and, you know, compassionate with myself and know that it's okay for me to go through some times where I need more time to myself or rest. And I think that that's like how this summer is shaping up for me. I'm doing the two camps, but around that, I'm mostly trying to give myself a break and write and record with you, but we've taken quite a break from recording with other people, which I think has been necessary, honestly. Necessary because we had a big backlog for a start, but maybe that was um, <laughs> the universe giving us a prompt that, you know, this past couple of months were going to be a bit difficult. Um, but I'm going to say something to you to wrap up, but I hope everybody else out there is listening to this as well. This is just proof that all you need to do is go out there and be your authentic self. You were just talking about, I hold myself to this really high standard and blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? Your authentic self is good enough. In fact, it's more than enough. And the more authentic you be, the better the impact that you have on other people's lives. So, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And you're right. You're right. I mean, I do. I feel good about the fact that I can be my authentic self and have it be enough at this point. Um, you know, I'm excited to go back next month and get another chance to do camp this summer. I think it's cool to do it because, you know, like, like I said, I mean, usually it feels like I finally like hit my stride. I've figured out how, what I need to do and how to do it and bam, it's over. And I don't get to have another second shot, you know, in the summer. So it'll be good to actually go back and do these workshops again and, you know, have had the practice of doing them once. But I mean, I just, 
I feel really blessed that I've gotten the opportunity to do this work. And it really, really felt good this year to be able to say to the parents and to everybody, I have this podcast, you know, if you resonate with what I'm saying, and this sounds like something you want to know more about, you can listen to the podcast. And it's just amazing to be able to offer that and to know that we've created this content in this space to have these conversations. And one of the counselors, at least Erica, I've asked them to come on and, and talk about the work they do and their own story as much as they're willing to share. And, you know, there's other counselors and adults, I'm sure who will come on and maybe kids at some point, like, I mean, we've already think about it. We've already had Stephanie Tolan, Sheila Gallagher and Patty Gattawalden, you know, all people have who, you know, either helped create the camp or I've worked with that camp and, you know, hopefully Michael will join us someday. Yeah. It's really, it's really good that not only can the podcast benefit the camp, but clearly the people from the camp have helped benefit the podcast. It's a symbiotic relationship clearly. Um, and I'm glad that you've been able to talk about this experience you know, not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of people who might be interested. Perhaps they've got you know, kids that they'd be interested in sending to UNASA um, or maybe thinking about, or or even for gifted kids, maybe listening to this um, and thinking about some of the issues that we've brought up. So um, mutually helpful all round. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Well, thank you, Emma. It's a pleasure as always. And thank you to all of our listeners. Whether you be campers or counsellors or our regular audience, we appreciate you. Positive Disintegration Podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. Until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.